You are listening to the Converge Media Network, uplifting our voices. Hey guys, Basa Gordon here. It's time for another episode of Rewind with Basa. And there's been a lot going on in the criminal sector of Washington State. So I'm actually really, really excited for this interview. Although it was actually scheduled earlier this month, it's happening at the perfect time, okay? We have U.S. Attorney for Western Washington, Nick Brown, with us. And we're going to talk about some of the drug issues going on, some of the plans that he has, and just also what others need to know and look out for, and in general, some clarification. So check this out. We're going to jump right into this interview as soon as we finish this intro. How are you doing? I'm good. Good? Yeah. I'm pretty good. And the sun's out today. Sun is out. Now, I, what's funny is like I was looking at the sun earlier and I was like, oh, I don't need a coat. And no, so no, then I'm waiting on a, <laughs> <laughs> I was waiting on my Uber and was like, who told me that? Yeah, no, this, <laughs> cool. this coat on so quick. Um, speaking of this coat, do you like Kraken? Like, do you ever go to the Kraken I went to the first game. That's why I you ran did? into Omari. Oh, shut up. Yeah. Yeah. That is so a, cool. Uh, That's the game that it was. They had a Black History Month. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Where the heck was I at? February uh, 16, 17, something like that. Wow, because I was there that day. Where, who knows where I was at? <laughs> I was good. I, was, I hadn't been in Climate Pledge or, or been to a, uh, the Kraken match or game, so it was good. See, that's dope. And like that was actually my first ever hockey game also. So okay. I was like, okay, I finally get to see what it's all about. And it kind of reminds me a little bit of a baseball vibe just with yeah. how the people are there they're all mingling yeah. they're having fun but Seahawks fans it's like a I don't know oh, they're very that's like serious a, that's like a you know what I mean sport, right? <laughs> like, you're on the field or in the stands it's a little different so I, I actually really enjoyed the Kraken I'm going to like today's game or whatever have you but um, I just want to ask about that because I'm always curious to see like who goes to the Kraken games because a lot of people that look like us typically don't actually go, but no, more but are starting the Kraken's to come. doing real good with yeah. you know, representation and the people that are that work for the Kraken. Yeah, you know they got a black general counsel. They got black people up and down there, like important positions, which I didn't know about until I went to that game in February. I was like, oh, okay. Like they're actually really doing their part, and apparently, only what fourteen teams actually have that uh, National Black Hockey Day. Oh, okay. Which and we just happened to be one of them, and I'm like, okay, Washington. Yeah. Doing a black a good broadcaster, job. you know. Like, yeah. yeah, no, it's good, and I don't, I don't really know the sport that well, so I, you know, it's fun to watch. But yeah, I got a lot to learn about the sport itself, but it's good for the city to have it here. I love that. Now, okay, before we get into like serious topics, I definitely want to know a little bit more about you. Um, obviously, you are a huge U.S. attorney. Like, it's a pretty big deal to be in the position that you're in, especially being that you were appointed by our current president. Mm -hmm. So I'm curious to know, like, when you were in elementary, were you like that <laughs> kid that was always arguing with everybody and your parents were like, yeah, I know what you're going to do when you get older. No, on. no, I wasn't. That's, that's a good question. I wasn't really thinking about being a lawyer really until towards the end of college. Really? Um, so I grew up in Pierce County. Uh, my father was stationed at, at Fort Lewis, JBLM. Um, so I'm a, I'm a local native down there. Um, I went to public schools all the way through high school. Um, but I didn't think about being a lawyer, doing legal work. Um, I wanted to do government stuff and I liked politics and policy as I was getting older. Um, but when I went to college, this was not on my radar at all. Really? Um, yeah, I mean, I was always active and engaged doing like student government and that kind of thing. But I never saw myself as a litigator or anything like that until much, much later. Interesting. So, okay. What, what was it that actually sparked it in you to want to be an attorney? Because it's not like you were like, okay, I'm just going to like do normal. I'm just going to open up my own law firm and right, you know, right. just do, Hey, if you need an attorney, let me know, put my face on a bus. Like you went straight to the top. Well, I didn't go straight to the top. Well, well yes, that is true. <laughs> it took me a long time to get here. <laughs> it was a That's process. Be, yeah. Um, so I, when I, I went off to Morehouse from here, um, I went there on an Army ROTC scholarship. So I was committed to serve active duty in the Army at some point when I was getting out of, of college. I think probably my junior year at Morehouse, I started thinking, you know, what's the way I want to serve in the military? The Army had, and all the branches have the JAG Corps, um, so you can serve as an Army lawyer. So that's when I really started thinking, you know, maybe I want to go to law school. And I, that plus my interest in doing government work 
policy work, politics, all that kind of thing. It was a lot of lawyers who, you know, that's their path to engage in those sort of things. Mm -hmm. So law school seemed like a natural approach for me. And then when I got into the JAG Corps, I spent about nine months or so doing family law, helping soldiers and their families navigate, you know, a bunch of small family issues. And then I had an opportunity. I ran the Army Tax Center. So I was running everybody's like income taxes, which in the Army. All in their business. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it's a, it's a kind of a viewed as a grunt job. Like nobody really mm. wants to do that taxes. But when you do that job, then you get an opportunity to choose what you want to do next. Usually. Oh, uh, so it's like a different kind of springboard. Yeah, exactly. It was like, all right, you did this sacrifice. Where do you want to go next? Yeah. In your Army legal career. And just looking around, I was down at Fort Bliss, Texas, which is in El Paso. Uh-huh. And sort of looking around at the opportunities, I said, well, let me try criminal. And so I went into doing criminal defense uh, for the army. So defending soldiers who get accused of crimes in the military. And I loved it. Like, wow. I walked into the courtroom. I was energized. I was representing, you know, mostly young men, young men and women accused of crimes. And they come to you and they put their, their liberty in your hands. Literally. And they're looking for help, you know. Uh, and I love talking to juries. I love talking to judges. And I was like, all right, this is where I belong. This is where I feel comfortable. Um, so I did two years of criminal defense, uh, one year in, in El Paso. And then I deployed to Baghdad in 2005, Ooh. spent a year over there in Iraq defending soldiers. Um, how was that? Even though like you weren't necessarily fighting, but what was it like to just be there? Yeah. And I mean, at the time, I remember when I called my parents, I said, I'm, you know, I'm thinking about volunteering for this duty. They're like, no, no, no. You're like, you're, wait, you can't volunteer. Like, okay, you're not telling me that you're sitting, that you're sending, yeah. you are sending yourself. Well, they were looking for people who wanted to go be, do criminal defense work, yeah. you know? And so I raised my hand to go over there. That's, um, but that's what I mean. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, I mean, it's one of like personally and professionally, it's one of the most impactful years of my life. You know? wow. So um, you're in the middle of a war zone. I wasn't fighting, but I was carrying my, my weapon everywhere. I was mm-hmm. traveling via Humvee or helicopter all throughout the city in Baghdad and outside of Baghdad defending soldiers, you know, so they're in their day jobs going out and fighting and, and putting their lives in the line. And then many of them getting in trouble and needed help. Um, so we've tried full on jury trials in mm-hmm. the middle of Baghdad during the middle of this war. And, and 2005 was a, was a serious year in, in that battle and that fight. Um, and I was with good people, you know, like some of my closest friends, one of them was just in town last week. Like oh, nice. People I met over there. And, um, but that's where I really just fell in love with that work and realized that like my skill set was best suited to be helping people mm-hmm. be on my feet, um, and trying to do good, you know? And so and, would you say going over there actually helped you find your why? Well, or certainly. Part yeah. Of yeah. Certainly part of it. I mean, going Joining the army and being in the courtroom, mm-hmm. I was like, you know, light bulb went off. Yeah. Like, this is where my talents, like I'm a good lawyer, but lawyers can be good in lots of different ways, right? Fair. You can be a great writer. You can be a great private practitioner. I was meant, at least at that time, to be in the courtroom. I felt mm. like this is what excites me. And it felt meaningful and relevant, you know, like every day I was doing something that was impacting somebody's life, mm-hmm. and, you know, and so trying to find where you can thrive was important for me. So I did two years of criminal defense. I came back to Fort Lewis in 2006 and then switched to doing prosecution. Um, And I was like, all right, this is what I want to do. I want to do trial work for a while. How different does it feel when you're like, okay, you're, you're doing defense and now you're doing prosecution. Like, does it feel different or is it just a different strategy for you? Uh, It's both. I mean, it's a different job, right? If you're a criminal defense lawyer, like you're, almost exclusive obligation is to help that individual. Mm -hmm. They have been accused of a crime. They have rights under the law, the the best representation possible. So you are helping that individual. My job as a prosecutor is to represent the people, Mm -hmm. right? So when I was an army prosecutor, I was there on behalf of the United States. Um, When I left the, the army and came to be a line prosecutor in an office that I now lead, you know, every time I would go to court, I would say, you know, I'm Nicholas Brown on behalf of the United States of America. And so you think about your job differently. You're thinking about the system. You're thinking about the victims of crimes or alleged crimes. You think about how do you do justice and what yeah. does that look like? These are things that defense lawyers think about, but their obligation is to do whatever they can in the interest of their client. Whereas as prosecutors, we're thinking holistically about what does it mean for the community to be safe, mm. you know, and, and how do you do justice? And so the job changes dramatically. So let me ask you this. So, did your thing, got to where you are now, and we have this 
crazy drug problem that is happening here in Washington state. And as I've done my research, I'm like, so this is even worse than I thought. Then I was watching like the news and I was like, wait, so wait, this just happened today. I was like, oh yeah, we have to talk about this on Friday. So let me pull out some notes really quick. Um, Basically, after a one-year investigation, it looks like it was 10 SWAT teams, 350 law enforcement officers, and you guys seized 1.9 million doses of fentanyl, 230 pounds of methamphetamine, and over 200 firearms. Now, this is something that you ended up saying in the press release that day after the sting was pretty much done. And I'm curious to know, when something like this happens and you are in the position that you're in, does this feel like a win or does it not feel like a win? Because you know that all this stuff got into not only our country, but our state. Um, yes and yes. Um, so first of all, I mean, we can talk about fentanyl the entire time, probably, yeah. but fentanyl is a very unique problem and, and different, at least from my perspective than some of the other drug trends that we've seen it's different for a few different reasons. One, it's incredibly deadly. Um, and we've seen overdoses throughout the country here in King County in particular at record highs. And so we're knowing, we know that people and a lot of kids, a lot of young people are dying from this drug. Um, so it's incredibly lethal, incredibly deadly. Uh, it's incredibly easy and cheap to make because uh, mm. it's largely synthetic. So you just need a chemical compound to make this drug. People are doing that at home and they're pill presses. They're doing it in Mexico. Wow. Um, and it doesn't require a natural resource supply like um, many or most other drugs do. So the ability for large organizations to make massive amounts of fentanyl makes it so easy to get into our, our streets. Um, so you think about that combination of deadly and easy to do, like we're dealing with something different here. Yeah. And we're seeing that in, in the data. And so when we have a case like this, um, where we've seized and taken a lot of fentanyl and meth and Coke and other drugs off the streets, I mean, I know that saves lives, right? We, I mean, DEA spoke at that press conference and the way that they measure the lethality of, of doses, the, the special agent in charge of DEA said that's enough fentanyl yeah. to kill everybody in Seattle and in Tacoma and another 500,000 people. Yes. Now, not that many people would have died had that all gone the streets, but, but more people would have you died. You could distribute it to that point oh, to where yeah. that could happen or just move it across the state right. lines. Right. And so I know we do a case like that. We've saved lives. Um, we've seized 230, I think, firearms total, mostly AR-15 assault rifles that are killing people. You know, we saw a tragic murder in Tennessee of children earlier mm -hmm. this week. So to take those guns off the streets, that is meaningful. Um, we think most of those guns were, were bound from Mexico to use the, by the drug cartels down there. And Mexico is dealing with incredibly high levels of violence. So I know that saves lives. On the same time, like I'm realistic, like we are scratching the surface on the mm. overall problem. And the way that we're going to solve this problem is not just through prosecutors and yeah. not just through law enforcement. And part of the struggle I have, because I think we're a good tool in the overall challenge that we have around drugs and other types of crime. But when people in the public get worried about crime, like they too often rely on law enforcement and prosecutor where like all these other things that people need to be thinking about, like how do we create safe and healthy communities? And so mm -hmm. this creates space. And that's how I kind of think of my role as the U.S. attorney, as prosecutors. We are a tool to create space for all these other things in the community to build up a safe and healthy community. And so, you know, this is good. This is progress. This is a, this is a win for, I think, community safety, mm -hmm. but it's not enough. Yeah. And there's a lot more that needs to be done. And even if I put every single person on my team just on doing fentanyl, it's still not enough. It's still not enough. Prosecution in prison is not the answer to solving these problems. So, And that's like the, the unfortunate thing about it, because it's like, do people... The question ends up being like, do people actually want the help or do they just actually want the drug so that way they don't have to think about what they're going through? Yeah. You know, like there was this one lady that I saw on the news and she was saying that uh, she has lupus. So that's why she uses the, 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 the oxy pills. But those can easily get and do get mixed with yep. fentanyl or what aren't those are the blues. Right. Yep. Yep. And so when it comes down to the people like herself that aren't necessarily able to see a regular doctor and then they go out on the street and grab these. So yeah, I definitely can see how that's a win because 
a lot of times they're going to do the drugs anyways. But one of the things that I wanted to ask you about was um, with fentanyl being so like just heavily distributed, not just around Washington, but around the entire world in the States. um, Why don't we have the test strips here? I saw that it was illegal in Washington. Uh, That's a good question. And I don't want to get too far afield because there's a state system and state laws and what the feds do. And um, I know the policymakers in Olympia and elsewhere are thinking about all the various approaches. So Mm -hmm. the availability of test strips, I know is hot button for for people. Um, But I'll just say that's a little out of my purview and my pay grade. You know, um, it's certainly as we talk about the drug issues, I know that's something that comes up a lot, um, but it's not. It's not something I can specifically do or or address. So in, in Europe, at least to your knowledge, outside of even this thing that we just had earlier this week, how are the drugs getting here? And do we have an idea of who is actually pushing these out to the streets, yeah. especially the youth? Oh, yeah. So when I found out that kids were doing it in high school, I was like, wait, what? Yeah. How are they even getting this? Um, well, I mean, and so... For our work as federal prosecutors, 99% of the work that we do is focused on the large scale distributors. So that is right now, mostly Mexican based drug cartels. Mm -hmm. Though there's cartels in Mexico that are flooding the country with drugs. And that's, that's just the reality. We don't prosecute folks on the street, you know, with small levels, unless there's something uniquely dangerous about them or some prior history. Like most of our work is organizations that are bringing uh, the drugs into the community. In this case, we just had a Monday, you know, it was cartel base, but they were distributing here through a Aryan nation prison gang yeah. association, which that in and of itself was unique for us. Um, I wasn't ready for that part. That, that, <laughs> that was the shoe. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean the lead defendant in that case. And I should say like, those are just allegations. Those people will have their day in court, but the lead defendant in that case, like he's in my hometown. Wow. Where he was before we arrested him. And that's a small town in Pierce County. And here he is leading a massive organization. Um, but the drugs are coming into the country. They're coming across the border. They're coming through SeaTac. So people will bring suitcases full of drugs through SeaTac. They're finding a way to get them through. Yeah. Yeah. Um, they're coming through the mail. People are mailing c- containers through the Postal Service or through FedEx, through the mail. Um, in Washington, we get a lot uh, on the water, um, get up to the Canadian uh, American border. There's boats that get seized. We had a good case earlier there or last year where we seized a bunch of drugs right off the border, meth and fentanyl. And so drugs or cartels are relying on, you know, just usually semi traffic or car traffic through the border down at Mexico, you know, Arizona, Texas, California, but they're coming in from everywhere. And so that's when I talk, when I think about how do we solve the problem? We're not going to stop all that. Yeah. Right? So we have to address the it's like coming demand. from too many different directions yeah, well, at this point. But to get to your point, like the people who have medical needs or perceived medical needs, mm-hmm. or they start with something small and they get addicted on something else. Like unless we're addressing that root cause problem, we're going to continue to get the influx because it's easy to get across the border. It's easy to mail into the, to the state. Um, you know, we're on the I-5 corridor from California and Mexico. So we get a lot here, mm. but it comes up here and spreads out all throughout the country. So we really have to do a holistic approach to addressing some of these problems because, you know, kids are dying, like high schoolers, middle schoolers are dying. Um, you know, earlier this year, I went to a, a meeting with a bunch of families of victims mm-hmm. and they're, they're teenage kids, you know, mostly, you know, I mean, we all went through high school, you start experimenting with things and you think it's innocent and then you get a pill because your buddy has a pill and he tells you it's one thing, and you might think it is, but then it's laced with a little bit of fentanyl and it mm. takes, you know, a drops of sand basically to be laced into that pill and you might end up dead. That's like the scariest thing ever. And, you know, sometimes like even with just like a, like a marijuana type thing, my friends are like, oh, I'm like, where did you even get it from? <laughs> you know what I mean? Like you just you better go to a safe retail store. Yeah, and you know, get a little, like yeah. it, like it, it's hard to even trust that these days to where it's gotten to that point. Um what effects are you seeing on the community that you actually even grew up in right now when it comes to this? Um, I mean, we've had tragedies like everywhere else, you know, and I mean, I'm thinking where I grew up in this Aryan nation guy and that's a whole nother story. Um, you know, but I, I have friends who I grew up with who had drug problems. You know, I have friends now who have kids in those same schools who are dealing with issues. You know, now I live in West Seattle 
and I've been hearing about problems in the middle school and high school, you know, kids doing drugs and like, and it's also, it's important for people to think about fentanyl is different because it's not just in certain communities or certain neighborhoods. I guarantee there are kids in every school in Seattle who are doing fentanyl and bringing fentanyl in. And this is a universal problem. And, and it's not a, it's not a problem that is only limited to one area or one community or one people. Like all the kids are doing it these days um, or doing something they think is innocent that has to be touched. But um, so when I go across this district and, you know, I represent our home district of Seattle, but, it's all up to the border and down to Canada, to Oregon. Um, this is everywhere. This is in every community. Every law enforcement officer I talk to, they're talking about it. Every community group I talk to, they're worried about it. So this, this feels different. And I think it's, that's borne out by the data and the facts that we're seeing. So, you know, things, I like having interviews like We got to talk about something positive too, you know? It, it, well, yeah, we definitely <laughs> got to talk to, about something positive. I was like, I just want to like get through like these things and move forward on life. Um, I like doing interviews like this because they're informative, but it definitely makes me sad because it almost feels like, I don't want to say there's no hope, but it's like a, like you said, you're just scratching the surface right about now. So it's like, there's so much more to do. Um, Do you have any plans that you're able to share that of what your office is doing to kind of like clean the streets up a little bit more, or at least make it more safe for the youth? Yeah, I mean, we're doing everything we can to bring the most important cases that we can and to have the biggest impact. So at least on the drug work, you know, we are heavily engaged in trying to get as high up in the food chain of drug organizations as we can. You know, and that again, like, I think we can get up high, we can dismantle some of these organizations, but it's going to take all these other pieces to really make it sustainable. Um, You know, and there are so many things that I think we should think about as criminal justice issues that have nothing to do with prosecutors, yeah. you know, housing, education, an economy that works for people that is sustainable, you know, cause people tend to find their way to drug abuse because they don't have somewhere to live, Yeah, you know, and they're out in the street and they're surrounded by people who are struggling and looking for an escape. So when we think about the housing crisis that we have in Seattle in particular, that is directly related to our drug issues. Yeah, You know, when people don't have a, a job to pay for things, they start doing things that are illegal. You know, and that spreads the drug crisis. If people aren't smart and educated and have community programs that are sustainable for places that kids go to after school, they start looking at other things. Yeah. And so, you know, we're thinking about how do we make this community safe? Like how do we improve all the issues here in Seattle but, or every city in America? The law enforcement is a piece. And as I said earlier, like we can create space, we can do a bus like this and that slows down the flow. But unless all these other pieces are coming into the picture in a really meaningful sustained investment, we're going to be back and we'll keep doing cases like this until we get serious about all these other pieces of the structure. So you are also um, civil rights project. What is it? What is your involvement? Give us the spiel. Yeah, sure. Um, So, I mean, civil rights is one of the big priorities of the Department of Justice. Um, When the Attorney General Merrick Garland first came in, there's three things that he's set forth as priorities and he is my boss. Um, so, you know, he talked about keeping the community safe. So addressing violent crime, some of these drug issues, reestablishing the rule of law. And so people have some trust in the system and, you know, trust has been down in the system for a host of good reasons. Mm-hmm. So everything that we can do to be transparent and uh, according to the rules, um, I think people build more faith in the system, but then civil rights and, for me, um, that resonates for a whole host of reasons. One is the Department of Justice was solely created to address civil rights post-Civil War. Mm-hmm. That is the reason the Department of Justice exists. There was an attorney general, but it was created to protect the rights of newly freed black Americans and, you know, and enforce the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments. And so as I think about my role now as the, the public face of the Department of Justice in this community, if I'm not talking about civil rights every day, then I'm doing something wrong and I'm not upholding that, that legacy and that mission. And so we do civil rights cases in, in my office. We've been doing it for years. You know, when people are discriminated against by, you know, in their jobs, in their places of worship, in their schools, in housing, we bring civil rights cases on behalf of the Department of Justice. Um, voting rights issues is a big, big priority. So that work has been going on for a long time, but it also ebbs and flows with administrations. And mm. this administration is really focused on civil rights in a way that we may not have seen in the prior administration. Um, so, but under that rubric, um, 
the, the U.S. attorney community, so there's U.S. attorneys like me across the country, we have uh, subcommittees that work on particular issues, and I chair the civil rights subcommittee for all the U.S. attorneys. And so I'm meeting with U.S. attorneys across the country to talk about how, what's the best practices that we can do? What are you guys doing to raise awareness around civil rights issues? How are we engaging with the community to learn from them about what are the priorities in their areas? Um, and there's really just really good team building around those issues. We meet fairly regularly, either online or in person. We just had a meeting in Alabama last month in, mm. in, in conjunction with the Selma March anniversary. So I led that group down to Alabama. We did the Selma March. We went to Montgomery and met with some of the leaders down there. Wow. And, and Montgomery, I'd never been before. That was, that was mind-blowing for me. Um, the history, the legacy there. We went to the courthouse where... How did the vibe feel down there? Well, the South is different, you like, know. Like, <laughs> I would just think that the energy would just be something over Yeah, there. I mean, it, you know, it's both, um, it's both inspiring. It's, uh, it's a little bit sad. Mm. Um, and I'll say that for a few different, so I went, we went to Selma, you know, and I, you see the images of Selma, um, on the news, you know, I'd seen people march over that bridge for years, you go back and watch the Selma movie. You get a sense of what that city is like. Mm -hmm. It hasn't changed much. Really? You go down to like downtown Selma, it is poor. It is segregated. It is underdeveloped. It looks and feels in my mind like it did 50 years ago. Wow. And I wasn't quite ready for that. I, people would say that to me. Um, and then when you're standing at the base of the Edmund Pettus Bridge, knowing that John Lewis and C.T. Vivian and all these black heroes, these icons that you read about in books, like they stood on that bridge in 1965, literally willing to put their lives on the line yeah. so black folks had the right to vote and had economic opportunity. And you cannot help but stand there and be humbled, but also a little bit saddened that it's 2023. We're still talking about voting rights, you know? That part. And I was just Especially reading over in Mississippi. Yeah. But not just in Mississippi. Like this is an issue across the country. Like yeah. Washington is pretty good around voting. Universal vote by mail is a really good system in my, my view, but all across the country, there are policymakers trying to limit the right to people to vote. Mm. I was just reading an article yesterday about people trying to pass bills to take polling stations away from college campuses. Why? What? Yeah. Now but I want to want the youth vote. They don't want the youth to vote because the youth vote in a certain way. And, you know, they're reducing polling opportunities. They're trying to reduce mail-in voting. And we should be thinking about exactly the opposite. Like, how do we expand voting? Yeah. How do we get as many people involved in voting? Like, we in Washington, again, I think we're pretty good. But we can do more. Um, and so, like, the work that we have in 2023, it is different. Like, it's not 1965. I don't want to try to compare but the same sort of big picture priorities that John Lewis and others were literally putting their life on the line for, we're still dealing with those. Mm -hmm. And then to go into Montgomery, we did a, a long, long visit to the Legacy Museum, which is Brian Stevenson's project, and the Lynching Museum, the Memorial for Peace and Justice. And so you go to the Legacy Museum, which tracks the, the history of transnational slavery all the way through mass incarceration. You can't walk out of there and feel nothing but um, some, the weight of it. You know, mm. and, and you see in that museum the jars of sand that they recovered from all the places where people have lynched. So they go to the trees where people have lynched and they dig up the earth and they put it in jars. And you, you walk into this room and there's just hundreds of jars of sand where black folks were killed. And that's deep. Right. And then he traces the narrative to how that impacts our current policies. And so I walked out of there like, all right, we got to be committed to this work. Yeah. And was having that dialogue with all the other U.S. attorneys down there. And that was, so it was, it was sad and depressing, but also inspiring because people came out of that, like, you know, there was U.S. attorneys from here, but also from Idaho and Montana and Mississippi and all these places where, where I think they have more work to do than we do here in, in Washington. And so to know that we were impacting the way that they were thinking about leading their, that office uh, was super important for me and super impactful. Wow. Well, shoot. Let's lighten the conversation a little bit. <laughs> no problem. The sand threw me. I was like, okay. I'm just saying, well, let, me say, let me say one last thing. <laughs> Everybody should find their way to Montgomery to go to the Legacy Museum. To see that and to, to talk and meet with Brian Stevenson about these issues was, was super powerful. <sighs> Definitely going to have to get down there. And I feel like there's never going to be a time that I will be ready 
But I, I mean, they weren't ready and they had to deal with it. So right, exactly. I think me just going there, I, I can figure that out. Get a good night's sleep, walk in and experience it. It's worth doing. What is getting a good night's sleep anymore? <laughs> <laughs> I'll nap on the plane. We are literally on our way back from Vegas. We had an amazing trip. We got some good interviews coming up for you guys. So definitely stay locked for that. Yeah. Look like water on my island. Uh, long way from running from the siren. So let me ask you this. Okay. There is, I want to say it was an Australian company, right? <laughs> and they ended up making meatballs out of woolly, woolly mammoth cells. They're saying that this is like the future of food. And you know, <laughs> with like <laughs> you throwing me off with this. Hey, go I ahead, we go ahead, go ahead, up. go ahead. I said <laughs> we were lighting it up just a week. So you know, a lot of people have been talking about like food crises, food crises, and people have definitely been trying to find different ways to like make food. And I have been seeing people making food out of like cultivated cells. <laughs> so let me ask you this: even if it wasn't the cultivated cells, would you ever eat woolly mammoth meatballs? Uh, if it was FDA approved, <laughs> I might think about it. If this was just some little company doing their thing on the side and trying to, no, nah, I wouldn't go there. I, I, there's plenty of food to eat. Uh, I wouldn't touch that. But you know, if like, if the scientists and every folks said this is okay, I might, you know, yeah, I might, like life, is, life is too short to be worried about too many things. But, little Costco sample size. You, know, you don't ever know. You, I go to Costco all the time and I'm saying, yes, I don't know what that is. <laughs> I sure don't. I'm like, <laughs> Smells good. Smell good. <laughs> I guess I'll just try it. If I don't like it, I'll toss it. Right. Um, so uh, in other food news, I'm always curious to know, would you try the ranch ice cream? Did you hear mm, about this no, debacle? No, like ranch or like mayonnaise type desserts. That's that's wrong. Like it's out of pocket, right? It's and there's not. like a there's a mac and cheese one, too. Yeah. Yeah. This is not. You're mixing the wrong things together. But here was my thing, because if it actually tastes like ranch and you can tell me if I'm wrong here, people were on TikTok and they were doing this challenge to see if they like it. But they were taking out like whole spoonful mm. of it as if it was mm. vanilla bean ice cream. And this was my thing. If I am at a barbecue or an office event and, you know, there, there there's veggies, there's ranch. I'm not going to take the ranch and pour <laughs> it in a bowl and just. What I would say, I mean? like, I try to keep it open mind. I will try almost any food. But when it comes to like a dessert, like my question is why? Like, what was you got all it? the good stuff. You got vanilla and chocolate and strawberries and like. You don't need to mix these things, but I'll try almost anything at least once. Okay. Well, I, I, I've thought about trying it, but when someone said it was kind of sweet, I was like, okay, you never mind. <laughs> because I was going to try it with like some buffalo wings yeah. or, you know. I mean, I, you know, I was, I was, I'm going to the Mariners game on Saturday. And yeah. I, was, I was talking to my son about is he and I are going together. And I was like, you know, they sell crickets at the Mariners game. They've been doing it for years. They're the only place in the country that sells crickets. Yes, huh. crickets. And because in other parts of the world, crickets are common food. They're cheap. They got high protein. They're easy to cook. So they'd like fry up crickets like potato chips. So like insects, um, we're getting way off topic now here, basically, but insects <laughs> are a big part of the food chain in a lot of communities, not in the United States, but you go in other parts of the world, Asia in particular. So I was telling him, you want to try, but you know, crickets. He's like, nah, I'm not, I'm not touching that. We'll do some hot dogs or something, you know. Well, they and they do have like some new pizza spots there. They have like a lot of new food. Oh, the food the, there is like it's, great. it was pretty yeah, good. I was like, point. okay, Chef Javier, you did your thing this season. You better. So okay, curious for people that want to get in to, I mean, obviously where you're at right now, that's a huge journey, but just getting through law school, you know, what advice do you have for them, especially for someone of color? Yeah. Um, well, and those are two, I mean, they're related obviously, but the, the dynamics that young attorneys of color face are different than white law students or young white lawyers. Um, what I would say in general is to me, like the law is an incredibly powerful tool and like you can go in and get your law degree 
and you can do business, you can do the criminal work, you can go civil side, you can do family law, you can do immigration work, you can do civil rights. Like there's a myriad of things that you can do law with, with a law degree. You can do policy, you can do government. And so not practice, you know, like if you go to med school and decide you don't want to be a doctor, like you, you wasted your money. You go to law school and decide, I don't want to be a trial lawyer. There's still so many things that you can do. Yeah. And people have to experiment with what feels right to them and figure out, you know, what's the right path for them and talk to people and find a mentor. And so a lot of advice for me for young lawyers is just ask a lot of questions, you know, and, and so many young lawyers I meet or people in law school, like, you know, I want to be an international business lawyer. Like, you don't know that. Like, you, you have you too <laughs> early. Good. Yeah, it sounds good. What does that mean? I don't even really know what that means. And so to try to think about like, what is the first three years going to be like? Mm. And I always tell people like, go somewhere with good people where you're going to learn a lot. And if you think in those like three to five year chunks, you're going to be all right. And, you know, if you have to change course earlier than that, that's fine. But to try to make, you know, think about the early things about what am I going to learn? Who am I going to work with? Is this a good place for me? And you're going to learn some skills there that you'll take on the next thing. But like, if you look at my career, I've been a lawyer for 20 years. I'm on my fifth legal job uh, and I'll have a six because this job is not forever. Um, you know, my career is not a straight path. Mm -hmm. you know, I went from being an army prosecutor to being a federal prosecutor to the governor's council to private practice to back here. And, and there's not, that's not a straight path. And so I just had to go places where I was learning a lot and working with good people and being open to the opportunities that came my way and the opportunities that I earned. Um, and the other piece of that is just sort of be authentic to what you want to be. Like if you want to go be a lawyer cause you want to make money, that's fine. Mm -hmm. Go make your money and be focused on the skills that you need to do that. Um, but just to try to be authentic to who you are and, and where you want to have an impact. For me, it's always been government service and public service and trying to figure out how I can make a difference in the community. Um, for black lawyers or lawyers of color, particularly in a city that doesn't have many of us, um, role models and mentors and a support system is really, really important because mm. you need people who have been through some of what you've been through um, because you are going to operate in spaces where you're going to be one of a few or the only one and you got to branch outside that network. And so all throughout my career, I've had people that I've looked up to, you know, whether we were formal mentor, mentee, or just, you know, old school folks that I had gotten to know who I, who I could look to and ask some questions, you know, for me in this community, that's judge Richard Jones, who was the first black federal district judge in Seattle. Um, that's James Williams, who's the managing partner at Perkins Cooey, Cooey here in Seattle. Um, Jeff Robinson, who's a longtime uh, defense lawyer and now works with the ACLU. And these are guys, I mean, they're, they're older than me, but you know, they're in a generation that I can relate to and mm -hmm. understand and, and just to see them, that what they're doing and the ability for me to ask them questions over the years, that's, that's important for me. And, and black lawyers, I think have to advocate for themselves more strongly, more affirmatively than, than other lawyers do, because they're not going to find that support system in every environment. And then also I'm curious to know, what are your thoughts on, uh, <laughs> My uncle used to always say, you should be an attorney. You always like to argue. And then my mom would be like, why? So she'd be held in contempt. <laughs> she would never be at home. <laughs> what advice do you have for lawyers that maybe always fall into that? Uh, what I would say is, um, you know, mo most of my best attorneys are not super argumentative. Mm. Like they are focused on how do we make the law work? How do I interpret, analyze the law? How do I boil down my legal arguments in the plainest, simplest terms to talk to the judge or to talk to a jury? And if you get in court and you're just fighting and, you know, throwing barbs, the jury's going to sit there and be like, uh -uh. They, they, you got to be likable, you yeah. know, and people who argue a lot often aren't the most likable folks. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, we see TV portrayals or, or movie portrayals of what lawyers do and we get into some some heated conversations, but lawyers need to be thinking about how do I analyze the law? How do I use that to further my client, whether it's an individual client or my client, the public, um, to advance the goals? And I've been a lawyer for 20 years. I don't like to argue with people. Yeah. Um, you know, I like to solve problems. And my approach is to be authentic to who I am and approach it with, kindness and some grace and some really well thought out legal arguments. And that's mm -hmm. how I can be successful. So 
if you just want to find a career to fight, like you can find that in the, in the legal career, but your reputation is going to spread quickly. And that is not the most effective tool for most people. That's what I'll say. And as you see, I decided to go on radio. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, uncle, I see what you're saying, yeah. but no. <laughs> I mean, you can't, as a lawyer, you can't be afraid to have those fights. Like yeah. if you're a lawyer and you don't like conflict, particularly as a litigator, that's not the right place for you. But if you think that fighting is going to solve the problems or be, you know, in the benefit of your client, you're probably wrong. That's fair. Now, okay, we're going to do six randoms with BASA. The questions are not crazy. They're just very, very random. And okay. it also lets people get to know a little more about you. Okay. So for starters, your favorite locally owned restaurant. Oof. I mean, this is, uh, this sounds a little bit can, but I went to communion the other day. I'm like, I did too. The vibe was like, the food was great. The service was great. The music was great. So that was the place I'm most excited about right now. Um, the place I go most often is the taco truck down the street from my house. You know, you can so, never go wrong with a good taco yeah, truck. Yeah, so, you know, <laughs> but like in terms of overall experience, communion was was great. What'd you get? Oh, it was like, I got the the soul sushi or whatever they call like With the bowl? Yeah, I yeah. I got that. Um, and there was a, a pork rib dish, so it was, it was good. Okay, yeah. so let me ask you this. Have you ever gone to Pike Place Market and actually caught the fish? No, no. Would you ever do that? Oh, for sure. Yeah. I don't know why. It kind of creeps me out. I mean, but it's like the most quintessential Seattle like, thing. Like, I want to do it, but yeah. it's something. <laughs> I don't know what it is. I mean, I didn't, you know. Catching a big You're going to smell like fish the rest of your day. And but maybe that's the, the part that's in the back mm -hmm. of my head where I'm just like, man, I'm just going to have fish juice everywhere. But I, yeah, I should try it one of these days. <laughs> okay. So, also, have you, do you still go to the movie theaters after the pandemic? Mm -hmm. Or are you like me where you mainly watch them at home? Uh, I mainly watch them at home, but I have two little kids mm. and they like going to the movies. And so I've, most of the movies I've seen in the theater in the last couple of years, I've been kids movies. I'm trying to think of the last grown up movie I went to see. I saw Top Gun in the theater, but I've seen lots of kids movies or I saw Avatar with my, with my 10 year old. I still have to see the new It was Avatar. good. And you got to see that in the theater, like on your TV. It doesn't, yeah. you know, like we did like the whole the 3D. Yeah, yeah. And everything I heard. We did all that. So that was like the last grown-up-ish movie that I saw in the theater. What would you say has been your most rewarding moment throughout your career? Um, I've got three and I'll say them quickly together. Um, on the pure like casework side, two cases, very different, but same issues. Um, when I was in Iraq, in Baghdad, I defended a young soldier from Louisiana, Louisiana National Guard, um, who was facing some very serious allegations um, in the middle of fighting the war. And I will remember defending that young man and getting as close to a win as we could probably hope for and standing outside that courtroom in Baghdad in the middle of the night. You know, the jury came back at 11 o'clock and... And when the jury came back and gave the verdict and him crying, like I will remember that for the rest of my life. Um, when I was a line prosecutor here in Seattle, um, I prosecuted a, someone who was accused of sexually assaulting his three young cousins. Um, and each of the three victims who were 10, 12 and 13, I believe had to testify. Wow. And the oldest of the victims was effectively a mute. Like she didn't really talk much. She had some developmental issues and trauma associated with, with that crime. And when I called her to us to the stand, I wasn't sure if she was going to say, the, say a word. Um, and she got up there and she told her story and, and got through it. And it was like, she was my kid. I felt so proud of her in that moment to be able to confront what had happened to her. Um, so in an individual case, like those two cases mm -hmm. were something that will last forever. On a broader issue, when I was, um, so I was Governor Inslee's general counsel for, for four years. Um, my, literally my first day on the job, we started working on the death penalty moratorium. And he put me in charge of, of reviewing our death penalty system in Washington State, doing uh, case analysis for him. He had a lot of concerns about the racial disparities and the death penalty. And I just spent 10 months getting up to speed and educating him and visiting death row and, and Walla Walla State Penitentiary. And a year into my job as general counsel, the governor Inslee put a moratorium on the death penalty. 
which mm. had not been done in Washington state before. And, it, and, and I think that the death penalty should never be used anywhere in any state um, or by any government. Um, and because of that work, I don't think we'll ever see the death penalty ever again in Washington. And so that wasn't an individual case, but my work as a lawyer, mm. I think was, was really, really important in getting Washington on the path towards justice in that particular issue. So let me also ask you this with dealing with all of those heavy things, you know, like you're like, you have a heavy job. <laughs> okay. Yeah. My backpack is heavy, but your job is heavier. So how do you decompress, recenter, like feel free and relax? Like how does Nick Brown let his shoulders down? Yeah. Well, I mean, first, like my job is great. Like I, I have the best job as a lawyer could have. And mm -hmm. even though we're dealing with hard issues, and issues that feel important, I get a lot of joy coming to work. Mm. And not everybody can say that, That's you know? Dope. So I'm very grateful for the fact that I have a job that pays my mortgage and that I love. Um, and I always tell people, don't mess with happy, you know? So you find something happy, like, you know, em it. embrace it. Um, and so even though it's hard and, and weighty, like I, I do this job every day. Um, Outside of work, I have two kids, you know, I'm trying to do everything I can to be the best dad. And so right now I'm soccer coach dad and Girl Scout cookie selling dad and Cub Scout dad. And, and that brings me a lot of joy. Um, I try to get outside a lot. So I'm running, you know, at least every other day when it's oh dark 30 outside and um, getting up to the gym as much as possible. And that, you know, I just put my, my earphones in and just, and just not think about things for a while. And that's a good, good release for me. But between work and kids and that, that's pretty much all I got time for. What would you say is one misconception of being a U.S. attorney? That's a good question. Um, I think there's, so both on the job and the authority, on the, on the job piece, people often think of um, the our ability to solve problems as broader as they, as they can be. And so some of the things I touched around er, earlier, um, we are a small piece of the justice system and the, and um, not everything is a violation of federal law. So we only mm -hmm. prosecute federal laws or defend the United States against federal, federal issues. And so the job is important, but also narrow in terms of the impact we can have on all these other justice related issues. Um, and um, my authority within that is pretty broad. Um, and so I, I've been surprised how much power we have in this, in this, um, narrow space to operate. Um, but I also find that a lot of people don't really know what the department of justice is. Like we know DC and if you ask somebody about DOJ or department, you might know who the attorney general is. If you ask people in Seattle, like what does the U S attorney's office do? They're like, Oh, I don't really know. They might've seen me in the news, you know, these days or press conferences. Um, but pe a lot of people have missed perceptions about what the work actually entails and what mm. my team does. And, you know, I don't have cases anymore. Like I'd lead the office. I set the policy. Um, I do a lot of the outreach and the community work um, for the office. Um, but I have tremendous staff in my office, professional staff, legal assistants, paralegals, and lawyers who are out there grinding, underpaid, and they're doing it because they want to make this a better place to live. Mm. And, you know, it sounds cliche, but like, that's really what the work is. Um, Cause I, you know, our courthouse is right next to Amazon. Oh, wow. Everybody on my staff could walk across the street and double or triple their salary. And that is the legal assistant or the lawyer. And the fact that they're not doing that means something to me. And mm. you know, they're sacrificing their bank accounts to help people and to try to make this community a little bit better. And so, um, but people, we want to try to spread awareness about what we do because not a lot of people actually understand what the work entails. That makes a lot of sense. Um, well, shoot, that was my last question. Is there anything else that you want the residents of Washington to know? Uh, no, I, you know, I thought you might ask about Survivor at some point, but that's good. I was I'm trying glad. not to. I read in an interview that you hate when people make that the no, 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 no. I hate that. So like, some yeah. other time, some other time. I was like, yeah, I'll just ask him something about it off camera. It's not that serious. No, I, I, <laughs> I appreciate the opportunity to come in and have a dialogue. And I think it's important for folks in the community to know who we are, mm -hmm. to know that the work that we're doing. And I want our work to be informed by what the community is telling us. Like I have an idea of what justice looks like or where the priorities should be. 
but I'm just one person and it's important for people to feel like they know who the U.S. attorney is or who my line prosecutors are. Um, so thanks for letting me come in and, and have a dialogue. I appreciate it. Yeah, thanks for coming. Thanks for telling us more about what happened on Monday because I was like, I didn't expect this. Hold on. <laughs> let me remix the whole interview. Yeah, I have no, questions now. That's a big deal. Um, you know, definitely hoping that we're able to, you know, get to get a little bit closer to the ceiling of fixing this problem. But like you said, it's, I definitely agree that there's a lot more than just prosecuting the bad guys at this point. Like we really have to figure out like, okay, this person is doing this for pain. How can we get them proper prescription? This person is doing this because they're depressed. Maybe they lost their job. How do we get them a therapist? You know what I mean? Like, or maybe in a gym, you know, working out actually really sometimes relieves so much stress. Yeah. And people with those type of problems, they don't get healthy in prison. Yeah. No, you know, I've seen the food. Yeah. I watched, uh, yeah, I watched a lot of shows and I'm like, yeah, I, I definitely wouldn't want to, I couldn't do that. Um, but shoot, until next time, hopefully by the time we meet again, you've gone down to Pike Place, you know, it's <laughs> finally nice. You gotta come with me, you know. We can, we can make yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. I'll, I'll put on like a little. <laughs> <laughs> Rain cozy. <laughs> I was thinking a plastic garbage bag or something, <laughs> but something just to make sure I protect myself. But, uh, well, shoot, you guys, until next time, hopefully, you know, you had an amazing uh, watch of this interview. Hopefully you learned some new things about what's going on around here and also learn some more things about our U.S. attorney, Nick Brown. So look, until next time, you already know what I'm going to say. Make sure you have an amazing rest of your day. And of course, keep that energy high. Converge Media produces culturally relevant content for Black and urban audiences. Our coverage is raw, transparent, and objective, praised by community leaders, government officials, and residents. Support Converge Media today via Venmo, Cash App, or PayPal at Converge Media.